consider with me four individuals. Jake says he loves Jesus, but he's not really into organized religion. He feels closest to God when he is out in nature, skiing, hiking, backpacking. He rarely gathers with the saints on Sunday mornings. He just doesn't see his need to do that. Then there's Rebecca. She spends a few months at First Baptist Church, and then a few months at First Methodist Church, and then a few more months at First Presbyterian Church. But she never goes to one church for more than a few months. But she's always at church on Sunday mornings, which is a good thing. Then there's Seth. Seth found a great Christian singles group that meets on Sunday evenings. He shows up early Sunday evenings, and every Sunday evening, especially when Sarah is there. But he rarely shows up Sunday mornings unless the sermon topic interests him. Then there's Naomi. She comes to church about half the time. The other half of the time, she's either at the lake or at a child's sporting event. What do these four people have in common? They all lack commitment to the local church. As a result, none of them are members of a local church anywhere. And sadly, this is true of so many American Christians. They just don't see their need to be formally committed to a local church through any kind of membership process. Now, in light of this common reality, I'm going to take a break from our Gospel of John series this morning, and I'm going to give a whole sermon on the importance of church membership. Now, why in the world do this now? Because GCF is growing, and there's a lot of people here who are really new to the idea of church membership, and I totally understand because sadly, this is a very uncommon concept in today's evangelical church, but it wasn't always the case, and more on that in a moment. Now, why do this sermon now, this Sunday? Because there's a membership class coming up in two weeks, and this sermon is designed to gently nudge you towards that class if you're not already a member of this church. So where are we going this morning? Uh, four points. Defining church, defending membership, dealing with objections, and then doing some application at the end. So first, defining the church. Why start here? If we're unclear on what the church is, it's going to be hard for us to join one. So what in the world is the church of Jesus Christ? Well, that word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, and that word means the called out ones. And those are the people who are called out by God to assemble or to gather with the saints in a locality. That word's used 114 times in the New Testament. So the church is simply those who have been called out by God from this world and called to join together with other Christians. Now, how do you and I spot a church? How do we know if a gathering is actually a New Testament church? Well, going back to the Reformation 500 years ago, the Roman Catholics accused the Protestants of not being a real church. So they had to ask the question, the Protestants had to ask, ask this question, what does the Bible say are the essential marks of a church? What do you have to have in place? What ingredients are required to actually have a church? And there's three things. And these have been agreed on by all Protestants of all denominations for 500 years. The first is the right preaching of the gospel. 
The gospel must be preached rightly, clearly. Number two uh, is the right administration of the sacraments, communion and baptism. And number three is the right administration of church discipline. Without those three things, according to all Protestants in church history, you don't have a church. I was meeting with a pastor a few years ago, and he said to me, you know, Dave, we just don't do church discipline. It's just not something that we do at our church. I thought, well, in church history, all Protestants would say that your church is not a church if you don't do that. More on that sticky subject in a moment. So those are the three marks of a church. Again, the right preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. If those three things are in place, you have a church. Now that I've defined what the church actually is, the next question is, why in the world would anyone want to formally join a church? Which brings you to the second point. So first is defining the church, and second is defending membership. Well, how does one defend this idea of formally membering up at a local church? Formal church membership seems to be the assumed context of so much of the New Testament, it's pretty hard to ignore it. What do I mean by that? Well, consider these assumptions. Church membership is the assumed context of the early church, that is, the New Testament church. Acts 2.47 says this. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice that converts were added to a specific group of fellow believers. Um, Acts 5.13, similar text. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Again, believers were joined to a discernible group of people um, that were called Christians. And these texts imply it was normal for new converts to formally join themselves to the body of Christ, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer, Acts 2.42 and following. Furthermore, the following New Testament phrases indicate that the church was a recognizable group of people. We see the phrase, the whole congregation, Acts 6.5, the church in Jerusalem, Acts 8.1. The disciples in Jerusalem, Acts 9.26. The whole church, Acts 15.22. And these phrases simply suggest the early church had a recognizable membership with well-defined boundaries. One scholar says this, unless one knows who the members of the church are, one cannot say whether the whole church is present. So it seems like some type of church membership was in practice uh, in the early church. But it's not just the early church, but ever since then, and again, every Protestant denomination that I can think of, and I can think of a lot in church history, have practiced formal membership, whether you're Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Methodist, Nazarene, Episcopalian, all those groups have said that church membership is a good, right, and biblical idea. But for some reason, the American church, especially in the last few decades, has a severe allergy to church membership. Why is that? Because Americans are intensely and fiercely independent. No one tells me what to do. 
But even more importantly, in the last 20 or 30 years, there were two movements, uh, one called the seeker-sensitive movement and one called the church growth movement that really reached their apex in the, in the late 90s. And those groups, rightfully so, really wanted to get people into their churches. But to do that, a lot of them compromised and they really minimized commitment and things like church discipline because those things don't uh, tend to uh, attract seekers. So the church growth movement, which was incredibly influential in America in the last 30 or 40 years, really minimized membership. And without membership, you can't do church discipline. So the reason why today so many non-denominational churches don't do memberships is because of the seeker-sensitive and church growth movement. But again, in church history, church membership has always been practiced by every Protestant denomination. So we live in a very, very unique period in American church history where this is not emphasized. And we have to ask the question, what did all of our forebears see in Scripture that many American Christians don't see in Scripture? Important question to ask. So church membership is the assumed context of church history or the early church. In addition, church membership is the assumed context of careful pastoring. Now this one is really important to me as a pastor. Church membership enables pastors to care well for the flock. How? They know which Christians they'll give an account for on the day of judgment. Hebrews 13, 17. Author of Hebrews says this, to everyone, including the elders, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This raises the question, are you and I supposed to obey every Christian leader that comes along? No. <laughs> we only obey the leaders of our local church, the ones who have formally agreed to care for us, and we've agreed to submit ourselves to their leadership. Will church leaders give an account for every person who shows up at GCF on Sunday mornings? No. We live in a very transient culture. There's people that come to GCF all the time for two or three weeks, then they leave. Or they come every six months. Am I going to give an account for those people on the day of judgment? I don't think so. There's probably been two to 3,000 people who have investigated GCF North in the last eight years, at least. A lot of folks visit a couple times and they don't come back. So who are the ones on the day of judgment that I'm gonna give an account for along with the other elders. It's those who have said, we are formally committed to this church. We're, we're, we're gonna become members here, we're gonna serve here, we're gonna give here, and we are going to submit ourselves to the elders. And again, that applies to the elders too. The elders also submit themselves to the other elders. But the author of Hebrews says, on the day of judgment, Every elder, every pastor is going to give an account for all the people in his church. That is a sobering, scary thing to think about as a pastor. And again, the ones I'm going to give an account for are the ones who have said, we are committed to being here. We want to become members of this local church. Now, I often talk to people 
out and about who claim to be Christians who don't go to this church. Uh, and they may attend a church once or twice a year, maybe four or five times a year, maybe not at all. And when I'm feeling extra snarky and bold, I say to them, huh, you don't go to church anywhere. How are you obeying Hebrews 13, 17? Which says, Christian, all Christians are called to submit themselves to church leaders. How are you obeying that command? If you are not involved in a church and a member of a church, how are you doing that? You really can't unless you say to those elders, I'm committed to being here. You're making your elders' job a lot easier by coming on a regular basis and formally committing to a local church. Because again, on the day of judgment, the elders of GCF are going to give an account to Almighty God for the members in this church. Sobering. Now, if you're not a member in this church, we love you. We'll do our best to care for you. But the practical reality is we're going to prioritize the members. Those who have said we are committed to being here, to submitting to the other members of the church and the elders, and to giving here, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this is just the practical reality of being a part of a church, especially a big church. Nothing personal, just practical. So church membership is the assumed context of church history. In addition, church membership is the assumed context of careful pastoring. Third, church membership is the assumed context of church discipline. Now, this subject raises all kinds of questions, and we deal with this in much more detail in the membership class, but let me just read the key text on church discipline from Matthew 18 and make a few comments about it. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and a few other texts make it very clear that church discipline is a wonderful means of grace that we all need. Church discipline is not meant to shame or embarrass church members. It is meant to keep people from straying. Church membership is practiced when someone in the church is behaving in such a way that the members and elders begin to question if they're saved. In other words, we're talking about significant things like a drug addiction, adultery, lying, murder. Um, those are the types of things that we discipline for in the church. And I've been a pastor at GCF for almost 18 years. And we've done this, we've gone to step four of Matthew 18, I think, five times. So it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And again, it is meant to... Um, restore someone who is walking away from the faith. It's meant to be redemptive in nature, and it works. Here's the point. You can't do church discipline, one of the marks of the church, if there's no membership. Because what are you kicking someone out of? 
If they're not a part of the church formally, how can you kick them out of the church? And again, that's the fourth and final step of discipline. And, and that's, that's for someone who, by their behavior, indicates that they are not living in, in accordance with the gospel. But if they're not members of the church, it's really hard to kick them out of anything. Which is why so many churches don't do this, because there's no membership. When I was in college, I was attending a church, and membership, the membership concept was brand new to me, even though I was born and raised in a church. And the guy discipling me was a pastor in the church. He said, Dave, you should become a member of this church. And I said, why? What's the point? And he said, because if you're a member and you sin, we'll go after you. And that conversation was the membership class and the membership interview all in about 30 seconds. That was it. But the point is, is that shouldn't we want that as Christians? I mean, don't you want someone to pray for you and challenge you when you begin to do all kinds of sinful, foolish things? Shouldn't you and I want that? I think we should. Church discipline keeps the church of Jesus Christ pure and keeps people from straying. And you can't do it without any kind of formal membership process. Church membership is the assumed context of church history, careful pastoring, church discipline. In addition, church membership is the assumed context of church ministry. Church membership is just really, really practical. How do we decide who serves in the ministries of GCF? Practically speaking, Many of the serving opportunities at GCF involve working with kids, nursery, security, youth ministry, et cetera. Anyone working with a minor at GCF needs to have a background check done, needs to be interviewed by a pastor and approved by the elders, and the membership process makes this all so much easier to do. In other words, the membership process helps us protect our children from bad people. How about the other ministries of GCF? Many of our ministries use complicated scheduling software. We schedule people out months in advance. It takes us often a while to train people on the production team, the sound team, the music team, other ministries that we are involved in or engaged in. And the reality is, is we're reluctant to really schedule and invest in non-members when we're not sure if they're gonna be with us in three months or six months or six weeks even. So it really helps us when we know Hey, this member's committed to us. Great, we're going to invest in them. We're going to train them. We're going to deploy them for service. We're going to schedule them months in advance. But without membership, it's really hard to rely on people. Bottom line is, we want to know people and make sure they know us before we entrust them with significant ministry responsibilities. This is just a practical reality of a larger church. Now, at this point, you may have some objections to membership, I get it. And that brings us to the third point. So first, defining the church. Second, defending membership. And third, dealing with objections. Let me deal with the three most common objections I hear to church membership. First, isn't being a member of the universal church enough? Okay, the Bible often talks about the universal church and the local church. Universal church are all the saints for all times in church history. The local church is the local gathering or expression of the universal church. 
But the New Testament has no category for a member of the universal church who is not also actively involved in a local church. Furthermore, all the commands in the Bible given to the church are given to the local church. That is, local gatherings of believers in places like Corinth or Galatia or the city of Rome. And it's nearly impossible to obey vast portions of the New Testament if you are not actively involved and committed to a local church. Like what? Well, how about all the love one another commands in the New Testament? There's over 30. Commands to care for one another, serve one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, give to one another. It's hard to obey those commands unless you are intimately involved in and passionately committed to a local body of believers. Objection two, Dave, you can't chapter and verse formal church membership. You're right, I can't. But you can't chapter and verse the Trinity and you can't chapter and verse the idea that Jesus Christ exists as two distinct natures in one person. We all believe those things, hopefully. And that's because we believe those things by putting together several different texts of the Bible And when you look at them all together, you develop those really important doctrines. So yes, I can't point to one chapter and verse and say, this is the verse that proves you gotta be a member of a local church. I can't do that. But I can build a case by looking at all kinds of other texts that seem to assume or imply that one needs to be formally committed to a local church. Objection three. Why do I have to sign a sheet of paper? Our primary concern is not that you sign a sheet of paper. We're concerned about your heart. We want you to love the church because Jesus loves the church. If you love the church, what do you have to lose by signing membership paperwork? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Furthermore, most Christians have no problem signing up for a membership at Costco or North Park Racket and Athletic Club. But then they're very, very leery about signing membership paperwork for a church. How much more important is the Church of Jesus Christ than Costco or working out? Think about Christian marriage for a moment. People often say to me, especially young single guys, Dave, why can't we just live together? We love each other. What does the Bible say that you actually have to get married with a formal wedding ceremony and sign marriage paperwork. Well, the Bible nowhere mandates that, anywhere. But the Bible does require us to get married. Otherwise, the sin of fornication would make no sense. The process of getting married varies from culture to culture. In our particular culture, we get married by having a wedding ceremony and signing formal paperwork at the courthouse, usually. In a similar sense, the Bible does not require you to take a membership class and sign membership paperwork, but the Bible does require you to be passionately committed to a local body of believers. And the formal membership process is one way for you to express your commitment to the local church in our culture of church hopping or church dating or radical expressive individualism. What does all this mean for us? Well, this brings us to the last point. Defining church, defending membership, 
dealing with objections, and fourth and finally is doing some application. What if I'm not a member? Let me say what we are not saying this morning. We are not saying you are not a Christian. <laughs> we are not saying that you are, not, that you are an immature Christian. We are not saying that you are not welcome here. We are not saying that once you join, you're committed for life. That would be cultish. We are not saying you must join right now. If you're new, stick around for several months and check us out first. Don't just join right away. I mean, if you want to, that's fine. You can do that. Um, I think the record is, there's a family that's here this morning. They came one week. Membership class was the next weekend. They took it and joined. The whole thing took about two weeks. That was a record. It was amazing. Most folks come three to six months or a year first, and that's fine. Take your time. No hurry. And we're not saying that you must join this church. This church may not be a good fit for you, and that's okay too. We are happy to encourage you to go somewhere else where you can join and commit and serve and use the gifts that God has given you to advance the kingdom of God through that local church. Uh, we, we have people that come and go all the time from GCF North, and that's fine. But what we are saying is this. Church membership is a wonderful way to commit yourself to God's purposes. Church membership is a wonderful expression of love for the body of Christ. It's a huge means of grace that God has given us to help us grow in godliness. Church membership confirms one's profession of faith. I think you and I would all agree there's a lot of deceived people out there. Maybe you're one of them. I don't know. But the membership process works like this. You take a class, then you're interviewed by one of the elders. And when the elder interviews you, he's gonna ask you what the gospel is, and he's gonna look for evidence of genuine faith in your life as you tell him your testimony. And if he thinks, man, this person understands the gospel, there's evidence of faith in their lives, the church corporately is gonna say, we think this person is a Christian. They're not deceived about their profession of faith. And isn't that what you want? Don't you want other people to say, yeah, we do think that Dave Farley is a Christian. He's professing faith in Christ. We've heard his testimony. There's fruit in his life. And we're going to publicly confirm he's a Christian. That is a wonderful gift to have other people say, yes, we see God's work in your life. You should have assurance of salvation. You are not being deceived. Other people think you're a Christian too. That's very encouraging. Church membership has been the practice of, again, every Protestant denomination for 500 years, which means there are probably compelling biblical and practical reasons for you and I to join a church. But please don't wait until you find the perfect church because it does not exist, especially when you join it. Charles Spurgeon famously said this, and he was a very godly man. If I had never joined a church until I had found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Let me speak to college students for a moment. College students often think, well, I'm only gonna be here for a year or two, or maybe eight or nine months, should I join the church? 
And the answer is yes, join. And when you leave and go back to California or Minnesota, wherever you're from, we'll send you on your way with our blessing. But in the meantime, why would you not want the accountability and the benefits of joining a local church and using your gifts to serve the body of Christ? So even if you're only here for six to eight months or a year or two, join. We'll try to serve you. And when you leave, we'll send you on, on your way with our blessing. But what if I'm already a member of the church? Let me encourage you to take some time this week to review the GCF membership agreement that spells out all the biblical obligations that we have committed to as members of this church. It reminds us that we are called to love each other, serve each other, forgive each other, give away our resources freely, serve in the body of Christ. It's a wonderful document that the members have signed. And again, let me encourage you to read through that, pray through that, and ask for God's grace to fulfill your obligations as a member of this church. Furthermore, consider praying through um, our forthcoming, hopefully in the next month or so, our brand new pictorial membership directory. One of the biggest benefits of a pictorial membership directory is you can pray for all the members by name throughout the week, every week. And what a blessing. The thing I'm most excited for about that new resource is that it'll give me a way to see all the members' faces and pray for them throughout the week. And by the way, as a member of this church, I've committed to doing that. I've committed to praying for, caring for, and serving the members of this church. Furthermore, if you're a member here, remember the goals of the elders are three or fourfold. The members... The, the elders have a goal of having every member involved in evangelism. We want every member involved in a discipling relationship, either through community group or discipleship group. And we want every member to use their gifts to serve somehow in this church. So every member serving, every member involved in a small group, and every member involved in evangelism. Those are our modest goals for the members of this church. So pray with us, if you're a member here, that God would help all of us to do those things. Serve, be involved in community, and evangelize our friends. It's a privilege to be a member of a local church, the body of Christ, and as Spurgeon calls it, the dearest place on earth. Well, in conclusion, let me give you one more reason to consider joining a church. You should join the church first and foremost, because Jesus Christ loves the church. Ephesians 5.25, the Apostle Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We often talk about wanting to have Christ's heart for the lost, the hopeless, the poor, the despised, the destitute, and that's wonderful. But we should also want to have Christ's heart for the church. Jesus Christ loved the church so much that he gave up everything, came to earth, suffered and died on the cross so that the sins of the church could be forgiven. And if you're a Christian, you're a part of the universal church. Jesus Christ loved you so much as, as a member of that church that he suffered and died so that all of your sins 
could be forgiven. He loves the church with an extravagant love, a costly love, a sacrificial love. He is passionate about his bride, the church. And if we love Jesus, we'll love the things that he's passionate about. And he is passionate about the church. And we can express that passion for the church by formally committing to one. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for making us members of the church, the universal church. All Christians, in one sense, are a part of the universal church, and therefore all Christians can have their sins removed and become your children, members of your body. Father, we pray that you would give us a passion for the things that you're passionate about, And Father God, you love the church so much you sent your own son to suffer and die for the church. Give us a willingness to suffer and serve the church of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would redouble our efforts to be committed to this local church if we're members here. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, in preparation for communion, I'm gonna read from 1 Corinthians 11. 23 and following. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is a wonderful reminder, again, that Jesus Christ has extravagant love for the church. How much does Jesus Christ love the church? He loves the church so much that he came to earth, broke his body, and shed his blood on the cross to remove the guilt and shame of every member of the universal church, the body of Christ. That's how much he loves the church. That's how much he loves you if you're a Christian this morning. So Jesus Christ came to create the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, and he did that by suffering and dying on the cross. And again, that expresses incredible love and passion for the body of Christ. So when you walk forward this morning as a Christian, walk forward rejoicing that God the Father and God the Son love you with an extravagant love. And remember, it was very, very costly for Jesus Christ to purify his bride, the church. Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here, and we hope and pray that you come back in future weeks. But this meal is not for you. It's only for those who made a decision to turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them. If that's not you, please sit back and relax and watch a picture as broken, sinful people come forward to rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ through the wine and the bread. If you're not a Christian, we hope and pray that all you've seen this morning encourages you to at some point make a decision to turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. And when you've done that, we would love to baptize you and then welcome you 
to this meal. If you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you afterwards. Please come track me down or track down the person that brought you, and I'm sure they would love to talk to you as well about what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. In the meantime, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us this meal, this wonderful reminder of your great love for us. Lord, we confess that we come to this meal broken. Many of us are far more aware of our sins this week than your grace. We pray that this meal would once again remind us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, all of our sin, guilt, and shame can be removed. So I pray that all those who walk forward this morning would remember that you love them with an everlasting love and that all their sins have been removed. As far as east is from the west, they have been made your children. Lord, use this meal to strengthen our faith. Use this meal to bring hope and encouragement and use this meal to remind us of your great love for us and your great love for the church, the bride of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. When you walk forward, grab some bread and wine or grape juice and then head back to your seats and sing with us and partake whenever you're ready. If you'd like prayer for anything, We'll have people on my left and my right, and they would love to take a moment to pray for you, but anything you'd like prayer for this morning. So don't be afraid to come forward and ask for prayer. With that said, please come forward whenever you're ready. the true and better Adam, son of God and son of man, who when tempted in the garden, never yielded, never sinned, and he who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again, dying he First the curse, then rising crush the serpent's head. 